Good morning, everyone. He taught yet another parable, and the crowds began to press in even more, hanging on every word. And even the rabbis and the church leaders were scoffing at every word. Everyone was locked in. And he began to teach a parable about a king. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a king who sends out an invitation to his son's wedding feast. And we find in that parable that there are two types of responses to the king's invitation. You have a group who is aggressive. They take the slaves' messengers or the king's messengers who are slaves and begin to beat them and slay them and really aggravate the king. And then there's another group who they don't uh, act in aggression. However, they act with apathy. They're lighthearted. They really just don't care. And so these servants went out to the highways and byways to call people to the son's wedding feast. And these, this group, the apathetic group, were lighthearted. They just didn't really care. The messenger said, come quickly. We have the preparations made. The calves have been slaughtered. Everything is prepared for you. Now, it's interesting in those days because there was two invitations to the wedding. The first one and everyone who responded to that would get a second invitation. So the implication by the Lord is this. This group of people had already said yes to the Lord's invitation. Now it was time to act on it. And so as the servants went out, the group said, well, I have a farm to go attend to, which is nothing more than an excuse. The second group said, I have a business to run, which is nothing more than an excuse. And the rest were indifferent. Well, I'm just not really interested at that time. Come back later. Jesus also taught another parable as he was walking or actually taught to a group of people as he's walking down to Jerusalem. There was a group following him and one cried out, Lord, wherever you go, I will follow you. And Jesus says, come, follow me. And the man says, oh, but I must bury my my father first. And after that, then I'll come and I'll follow you. An excuse. Jesus says, let the uh, dead bury their dead. Then another person says, Lord, I'll follow you. And the Lord says, you come, follow me. And that man said, no, no, I must go home first and tell everybody goodbye. And then I'll follow you. Another excuse. And Jesus says, whomever lays their hands to the plow and looks back is not worthy of God's kingdom. We have another story of Lot and his wife and their two children. God sovereignly calls them out of judgment, out of that valley of Sodom. And as they are walking and fire and brimstone is falling down, Lot's wife looks back with the implication that she's yearning for the old life and God judged her on the spot. The point I'm trying to make is this. God has called us and God has summoned us and activated us for a purpose. No excuses are valid as to why we cannot follow through. And that leads us right into our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, this is an interesting part of the book because Paul veers off of his original writing and he begins to do a Q&A with the body. In chapter 7 through 11, Paul begins to address some of the questions that the church had in response to some of his teachings. And it's really interesting because they're not theological questions, they're practical questions. Things like marriage and singleness, things like racial identity, And things like social and economic standing. Well, what if I'm poor? What if I'm rich? What if I'm a Jew? What if I'm a Gentile? What if I'm single? What if I'm married? All of these questions about how Christianity infiltrates everyday life. And Paul starts in chapter 7 by saying this, that if you're single, just like I'm single, that is actually a good thing. Now, this was a point of contention in the Corinthian church because you had Jewish Christians who elevated marriage. 
And they said, if you want to be saved and you want to fulfill God's command of being fruitful and multiply, you must be married and have children. And as they elevated marriage, they diminished singleness. And Paul says, no, no, no. Singleness is good. It's less stressful and you have more opportunity to serve God. That just comes right from the text, not from my mouth. You have more opportunities to serve. Then the other group who were made up of primarily Greeks who believed in the Stoic way of life, the, the Aristotles and the, the, um, who are the other guys? Socrates and Plato's of the world. They said, no, no, no. Being married is wrong because you are having physical sexual pleasures and that is not good. If you really want to be pious, if you really want to be holy, if you really want to be righteous before God, you must remain single. Hence why the Roman Catholic Church, the priests, the monks, and the nuns are not uh, allowed to be married because their view coming from this Roman Greek Gnosticism is if you're single, that's the best route. And Paul says, no way. Being married is good also. They are not one above another. They are absolutely equal. And in the Corinthian church, the singles were making excuses why they couldn't honor God. Well, I'm not married, and therefore I'm not good enough. Therefore, I won't do anything. The married people were making excuses. Well, I want to be more holy, and I want to be more righteous, so maybe I should just leave my wife, and then I can serve God faithfully. Paul's principle that we find throughout all of chapter 7 is this. Wherever God has you in life, serve him. No excuses. Absolutely no excuses. Now we enter into the area of racial identity, your past religious experiences, and even your social and economic class within the world. If you're poor or you're not poor, if you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, if you were a theist or an atheist, none of that is an excuse for you not to serve the Lord. So I have a little outline for you. It should be there on the slides. Verse 17 is Paul's principle. And the principle that runs throughout the text is just as it says, wherever God has you in life, serve him. And there's absolutely no valid excuse not to fulfill your ministry. So we'll flesh that principle out. And then verses 18 and 19 is an illustration. And this deals primarily with race. Then verse 20, the principle is restated or reiterated again. And then we have another illustration dealing with slavery. And this deals with economics. Well, if I'm poor, can I serve? If I'm rich, can I serve? Does that even matter? And then lastly, in verse 24, we have the principle laid out one more time. So let me say this. When the Holy Spirit writes the same thing three different times in this few of a and little of a passage, God is trying to get his message across. There are absolutely no excuses why we can't be about the Father's business. So let's pick up at verse 15 to get a kind of a running start, and we'll get right into our text. Verse 15 says, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother and sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, we're going to get into this area of God's calling. And he's called us for the purpose of what, according to verse 15? Not a trick question. It's right there on the screen. He's called us for what purpose? Peace. The Christian's life should be marked out completely and totally by peace. When we were unbelievers, we were at war with God, the Bible says. We were at enmity with Christ. We were rivals, and then God called us, and he saved us, and we became the children of God. So we have the peace with God. No more at odds, no more at war. We have peace with God. And then God gives us his peace. So we have peace with God, and we have the peace of God. How are we given peace? How are we given peace? Through God's Holy Spirit. One of the fruits of the Spirit is peace. And he enshrouds us and seals us so that we can be at peace with him and experience his comfort and his peace. And then the church is called to the bond of 
peace. We are called to be unified in a peaceful way. The church should be above everywhere else, a place of peace and rest for your soul. There shouldn't be factions and divisions like there was in the Corinthian church. There shouldn't be church splits. There shouldn't be cliques. There shouldn't be rivals. There shouldn't be any competition or any of that thing. It should be completely and totally a place of peace. And then each individual Christian, Romans 12 says, are called to be at peace if it is possible with all men. Now the world will hate you because they hate God. And we're going to see that more and more in our nation. As we get further and further away, the gospel is going to be considered hate speech. The gospel will be persecuted. It's bound to happen. The world will hate us, but we respond with a bond of peace, if at all possible. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Children of God. And then we have the home. And this is where Paul is bouncing off of right here. In the Christian home, it should be marked by peace. Husband and wife, peace with each other. Children at peace with each other. And then children at peace with father and mother. The parents aren't to be contentious. And the parents aren't to be overbearing with their children. And the couples aren't to be uh, hateful or spiteful to one another, but love and respect each other, which creates an environment of peace. And with that, we see verse 17, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. So this is a command, not just for the Corinthian church, but the church universal, that the church universal is to, by principle, be about the father's business. Now, when we look at the Greek manuscript, it's interesting because it's actually flipped. So is anybody reading out of the New King James or a King James version? No? All right. You are? You'll notice that it says, God has called, and then it says, the Lord has appointed. And that's actually how the Greek manuscripts run it. First, God's calling, then the Lord's appointing, and then our mandate to walk in that call. So this is really the beginning of Paul's argument as to why we are to serve the church and serve the Lord faithfully and walk worthy of our call. It all starts with God's calling. So you remember back in chapter one, if you don't, no worries. First Corinthians chapter one, verses one and two. The word called is the word elect, electos. We get election. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of whom? God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So here we have God's call upon the Christian life. And this isn't just for Corinth. It's for any believer who calls on Jesus as Lord. The reason you call on him as Lord is because God first called you. John says, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Our love is a responsive love back to God. Now, when did this calling take place? Did it happen because you were a a good little Christian boy or good little Christian girl or you were moral or you were cute or you were talented? No, this actually happened before Genesis chapter one, before the foundations of the earth. If you look at chapter two and verse six, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So for those who have been here through chapter two, what specifically is that wisdom that Paul is referring to? It's a specific message. What is the wisdom of God that the world cannot comprehend? The wisdom that saves. It's the gospel that Christ died, was buried, rose again, and ascended. He says that 
The world does not understand that truth. Had they understood that truth, verse 8, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 9, just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. That's not talking about heaven. That's talking about the natural man's eyes, the natural man's ears, and the natural man's heart cannot comprehend all the things that God has done for those who love him. Now look at verse 10. But for to us, God revealed them through the spirit, for the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. And verse 7 says, this happened before the ages to our glory. So God has called us before the ages to be saints. What does it mean to be a saint? It doesn't mean you, you're you on a stained glass window. It doesn't mean you have a halo around your head. It means you are a holy one. And a holy one is a Christian. So God's calling is for you the Christian, which happened before the ages for your glory. Now, this is his argument. If God did this for you, if God the Father called you and selected you, God the Son sacrificed on the cross for you, and God the Spirit sealed you for eternal glory, how much more should you give back? This is the principle that Paul is now going to flesh out. If God has done so much before Adam, before let there be light, before all of that, how much more in this life are we to serve him? So going back to our text and verse 17, God has called and the Lord has assigned to each one. Now the word assigned means to deal out, It means to divide the spoil or to apportion. God has called you and then he doesn't expect you to do nothing. He doesn't expect you to just sit around and contemplate your navel or to go up into the hills and stare at the stars. God has called you for a very specific reason. And at the end of verse seven, it is to walk in the manner that is 17, sorry, walk in the manner that is worthy. So God saved us. And then now the Lord assigns or equips us for the purpose of ministry so that we can actually walk worthy between him. Did you know that every member of Jesus Christ is a minister of Jesus Christ? That means if you are a Christian, you are called to active ministry. It's not just for the pastor. It's not for the evangelist there in the arenas. It's actually for every single Christian on earth. You are called to minister and as a member of Jesus Christ, and you have the gifts and purposes and abilities because God himself has granted granted them to you. God gave them to you and the son, like a good groom, gives gifts to his bride, the church, and the Holy Spirit empowers you with spiritual gifts to fulfill your ministry. This word appointed is also found in Romans 12 and it's used in the same exact context. So Romans chapter 12 verse three through eight, if you can turn there. Romans 12, three through eight. The first 12 chapters of Romans deal with God's calling. And we just went through that in about five minutes. Paul takes 12 chapters to flesh out God's call on your life. And then in chapters 12 through 16, practically, what do you do when you're saved? Verse one, be a living sacrifice. That means you are to die to yourself and you're to live to Christ. Then verse two, how do you do that? Not conform to the world. We're not listening to the music. We're not listening to the, or watching the entertainment. We're not so inundated with the world stuff that we, we completely and totally just uh, showered with the world's knowledge and the world's philosophies. We are to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. After that, look at verse three. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, 
but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has, and here's our word, allotted. The word assigned in our text and the word allotted here is the exact same Greek word. To each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, this is the Lord appointing to each gifts for the purpose of their ministry. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, it is serving. Or he who teaches in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. When you're saved, you are unemployed for the world and you're deployed for God. And he gives you gifts and callings and purposes so that you can actually see it through until the end. So if God's called you to be a teacher, refine, refine, refine your skill. Be the very best teacher that you can possibly be. Don't settle for the longhorn messages where it's two points and a whole lot of bull in the middle. (laughs) Work hard at your craft. If you're a leader, be diligent. If God called you to with the gift and the calling of being a generous person, then use that gift and exercise it with liberality. Whatever the Lord has gifted you in, use it to your maximum potential. No excuses. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. And verse eight. So we are called and we are equipped by the Lord. And then we are called to walk in that calling. We are called to walk worthy. Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship. There's our calling from God. Is it because of anything we did? It is a gift of God. Now here is the activation. We go from the calling of salvation to the Lord's activation. Verse 10b. Created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You are saved, you are equipped, and then you are deployed for the ministry. Look at verse or chapter four and verse one. Paul spends three chapters in theology, and then in chapter four, he gets to the practicality. Chapter four and verse one. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What does it mean to be a Christian? A follower of Christ, or even more accurately, a little Christ. You are a little Christ, and your sanctification or maturity process is to become the exact replica of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, if that's your calling, and Christ is your standard, then live up to your name. You have a beautiful name. You are a Christian. Live up to that standard. Now we look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Here is the Lord appointing and then the Lord requiring of us to actually meet our obligations. 
Why do you think it's important to be active and to serve and to actually do what the Lord has called you to do? Why do you think that's important? We all have to do our part for what purpose? To represent God. And then what happens at the very end? You will stand before the Lord. And what happens? You will be judged. You will be judged for everything that you do in the flesh. Look at the parable the Lord teaches in Matthew 25, verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who has called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. So the man in this parable is the Lord Jesus Christ. And who are his slaves? Us. And he entrusts us with his possessions. He gives us things to do, and he gives us resources to get them done. Verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. So if you're a two-talent person, God's not requiring you to be a five-talent person. He's simply requiring you to be faithful with what he has entrusted you with. And Verse 16, immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug it in a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and what? Faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted me with two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. What did this guy do? One, he shifted the blame and he was blaming God for why he wasn't active. And then two, he talked about fear and anxiety. I was so fearful, therefore I didn't do it. And we see this all the time. I might not be smart enough. I might not know what to say. I don't really know what I'm doing. Therefore, I'm not going to do anything at all. Look at the master's response, verse 26. But his master answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For everyone who has more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have even what he does has ha, what he does have shall be taken away. So going back to our principle in verse 17, God has called us. He's then equipped us and he's then called us to walk worthy of his call. Going back to the very beginning in, in our book of Corinthians, we said, what is the church and what isn't the church? And what the church isn't is a property. The church isn't a program. The church isn't a preacher. The church is the people. You are the church. You are the church. The church isn't a school bus where everybody hops along for a free ride. The church is an anthill where we are all working according 
to each other's will and according to God's will for the singular purpose of moving things forward. If you ever looked at an anthill, you don't have 95% off to the side doing nothing. Every single one is active for the common goal. That's the church. And this is Paul's principle, that wherever God has you, whether you're single or you're married, whether you're black or you're white, whether you're smart or not so smart, whether you're rich or you're poor, none of that has any bearing whatsoever on your ministry, on your purpose here on earth. There are absolutely no excuses. So one of the excuses the church at Corinth had was race. Well, I'm not a Jew or I'm not a Gentile. Therefore, I can't honor God in the way I ought to be. Paul shatters that with his illustration. Look at verse 18 and 19. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? Now, who are the circumcision? What people group? The Jews and the uncircumcision is everybody else. Now listen to Paul's argument here. Was any man called, that's to salvation, and then equipped and then called to ministry? Was any man called when he was already circumcised? Meaning were there in Corinth Jews who were circumcised, they adhered to the law of Moses, and then God saved them through the gospel? Were there Jews who were saved? The answer is yes. If you look at chapter 18 of Acts, Paul goes to Corinth. He goes directly to the synagogue. He preaches the gospel and the leader of the synagogue and his household and others follow him and they start the church right next door. So circumcision or being uncircumcised isn't the basis for salvation. And Paul is saying, if you're circumcised and you were following the law and now you're saved through the gospel, good on you. He is not to become uncircumcised. Now, here's the context of that, because you think, how in the world can a person go from being circumcised to then being uncircumcised? It actually happened. What is the time period between the Old Testament and the New Testament called? That intertestamental time. Does anybody know what it's often referred to? The, the time of the Maccabees. Have you ever heard of that? The Maccabean. So if you have a Catholic Bible, you'll see the Apographa. And in there, you'll see first, second, and third Maccabees. And what this was, was a 400-year period where the Jews began to revolt against their oppressors, specifically the Grecians at this time. There was a guy named Judas Maccabeus, and he hated the fact that Israel's identity, his patriotism, was being taken away by Greek influence. So they began to fight back, and they began to revolt. But not every Jew followed along. In fact, a lot of Jews, they said, we don't want war. We don't want to fight. We will succumb to the culture. And so what they ended up doing was going through a surgery to uncircumcise themselves. It was a, it was a process where they pulled the skin right back over. I'm sure a painful one, but it brought about many perks. For example, there were gymnasiums that were scattered all throughout that you can go to and train to be an Olympian or to the Isthmian Games. Anybody know where the Isthmian Games were held? Where? In Corinth. So in order to go to these gymnasiums, in order to be an Olympiad or to compete in Corinth, you would have to pull your pants down and show, prove, it was your gym card, that you were actually uncircumcised, that you identified with the Grecian culture. Paul is saying, you don't have to do that. You weren't saved through that means of uncircumcision. God saved you right where you are at. So people in Corinth were making the excuse, well, if I really want to go out and make a difference in my culture, I must be this way. Paul says, no, you were saved as a circumcised male and you are to remain that way. No excuses as to why you can't get after it right now. Why is another reason why that is so vitally important? What would happen to that man's family, to his friends, and to everyone he grew up with around in synagogue? They would do what? Abandon him. Absolutely abandon him. And what happens to his ministry and his testimony and his form of evangelism? 
it dies. It's completely gone. So Paul says, God saved you in that way. Remain in that way. Serve the Lord right where the Lord has you. Absolutely no excuses. Now going on, has anyone been called in uncircumcision? So has anybody been saved without going through the right of Moses? Yes, there are tons and tons and tons of Greeks who knew nothing about the law of Moses who were saved through the gospel. He is not to be circumcised. There were Judaizers going around saying, you're saved by grace through faith and circumcision. If you get circumcised and you adhere to the law of Moses, then you're really holy then you're really a true Christian. And so you had Greeks saying, well, I'm not circumcised. And in order for me to serve God and have a godly influence, I must do that first. I must be pious enough to serve the Lord. It's just another excuse. It's like the single saying, when I'm married, then I'll serve. It's like the married saying, when I'm single, then I'm served. It's like the person saying, when I'm retired, then I'll serve. Or when I graduate college, then I'll serve. No, you won't. If you're not doing it now, it's nothing more than an excuse. So Paul says to the circumcision or uncircumcision, verse 19, it is nothing. But what matters? Right there at the end of verse 19, what matters? Keeping of the commandments of God. If you turn to Galatians 5 and verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. And then in chapter 6 and verse 15. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So this is dealing with race. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew. It doesn't matter if you are a Gentile. What really matters is that you walk the walk as a new creation by faith and love, obeying God's commandments. And it's not called the great suggestion. It's called the great commission. What has Christ commanded all of his people to do? Go out and make disciples. No excuses right where you are at. If you're single, if you're married, if you're black or you're white, if you're a widow or widower, it doesn't matter a darn. Go out and make disciples. Now going back to our text, the principles reiterated again in verse 20. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Now, that doesn't mean if you were a pimp before you got saved that you continue on in that lifestyle. He's not talking about immoral things because what is the sentence right before it? You are to keep God's commandments. So he's not talking morality. He's talking your position. So whether you're rich or poor or any position, none of that has any bearing. You are to serve God right where he has you right now. Verse 21, our second illustration. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to also become free, rather do that. In Rome, about 50% of all people were slaves, 50% free. Outside of the city of Rome, about one-fifth of every person in the Roman Empire were slaves. And Paul is saying, were you called while a slave? Were there people who were enslaved, indentured servants, and God called them to salvation? Absolutely. We actually have a guy in the Old, in the New Testament called Onesimus. If you've read the book of Philemon, he was a runaway slave. He meets Paul. He gets saved. And Paul says, now go back. I actually know your master and he's a born again Christian. And I think he'll be able to work things out with you. But the point is, slaves and free men were both called and saved by the Lord. There was none above the other. This is the excuse that, well, I'm too poor. I can't give. Or I'm too, I'm too rich. I'm too busy, busy with my businesses. I don't have time to serve. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, none of that means a thing. Verse 22. 
For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. What happens when you come to Jesus? He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Galatians 5.2, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not go back into the yoke of bondage. So we have been called for freedom. We have been called to be set free. Paul is saying, if you find yourself stuck to the nine to five, enslaved by student loans, if you find yourself just drowning in debt and enslaved in this world, you are free in Christ. Focus on that. We are all equal. And then verse 22, following. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with the price. Do not become slaves of men. When you are set free from Christ, you're not free to do anything you want, right? You go right into the bondage of another who is Jesus Christ. So we're free from the world. We're free from sin. We're free from death. And we are then shackled to Jesus Christ, making every free man and making every slave one completely equal before the Lord. They've been set free for the, from by the Lord, and then they are shackled to the Lord to serve in ministry. And then verse 23, you were bought with the price. Do not become slaves of men. What was the price by which every single and every married, every Jew and every other race, every rich and every poor man was bought with? The cross of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter one and verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for your sake who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. All of us who call on the name of Christ have been freed through the blood of Christ. Now verse 24, closing with the principle again. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. In order to serve God right where you're at, you need two main things, godliness with contentment. And Timothy, and Paul writes to Timothy and says, if you have those two things paired up, you will have great gain. You put God first and you are content right where he has you in life. So if you're single and you're desiring of a mate, and you desire to get married, your singleness is actually good for the time. Put God first, and everything else will fall in place. Be content right where the Lord has you. If you're married and it's it's on the rocks, there's a struggle there, praise the Lord right where you are at, and be about the Father's business. Don't make excuse. Put God first, and be content in the position he has you in, and you'll be okay. If you're indebted and you're poor and you're worrying about how you're going to pay the rent or your cell phone bill or even put gas to get to your job, put God first and be absolutely content right where the Lord has you. So there's two keys to contentment that I think will help us if we apply them to our lives. Key number one, focus on Christ not your circumstance. Get your eyes off of the problem and put them on the person of Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, verse 11. Paul is writing this from prison. And he writes, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in 
whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. What was the key to Paul's content, uh, contentment? Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He got his eyes off of his poverty, off of his imprisonment, off of his beatings, off of his the rods he took, off of the lashes he took, off of the times when he went hungry, off of the times when he was abandoned in the sea, when he was bit by a poisonous snake, when he was persecuted by the Jews, when he was persecuted by the Romans. He got his eyes off of every one of those circumstances, and he realized that with Christ, I can do everything. And with Christ, he is the one who is my strength. Going to the second key, get or focus on your walk and not on wealth. It is so easy to get our eyes off of the purpose of Christ and get them on building our own kingdom, building our own empire, putting the almighty dollar above the almighty God. It's so easy to do. So Paul is writing to a young pastor, Timothy, and he instructs them, instructs him on what to do. First Timothy chapter six and verse nine. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. Verse 11, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Here's a command. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Focus on your walk and don't focus on your wealth. It can ensnare you. It can trap you. It can bind you up. How many pastors have fallen into that health, wealth, and prosperity where they want to get rich off a sordid game, where they want to become lucrative and they've abandoned the ministry? We all have that temptation to put God second and try to build our own kingdom. But we are to not do that and we are to pursue the things of God. And I want to close with one last teaching from our Lord. When it comes to having anxiety, when it comes to worry, when it comes to about thinking about the future, focus on your walk and not about your wealth. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, How will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Now, verse 33, here's the key to overcoming anxiety. Here's the key to overcoming worry. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Paul is saying God has called you from eternity past. The Lord has equipped you and gifted you for the purpose of walking worthy today. No excuses as to why you can't. Your singleness or you're married or you're a widow or you're a widower or you're a certain type of race or you're a certain, certain type of class, whether that be poor, middle, or a wealthy class, none of that has any bearing. You are called to serve the Lord in the here, right here, right now. And the key to doing that is godliness with contentment. Focus on Christ and not on your own personal circumstance. Peter walked off the boat, and while he had his eyes on Jesus, he was able to do the miraculous. The storm came, which is our circumstances. He took his eyes off the Lord, and what happened? He sank. And that's what happens to us when we take our eyes off of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time that we can get into your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is powerful. We thank you, God, that it pierces and it can make us uncomfortable and it can uh, even give us some forms of conviction, Lord God, but these are good. These things are good. Being comfortable with the uncomfortable is good. It causes us to not become bitter, but become better Christians. And it causes us, Lord, to walk worthy and to repent and to put you forward and to build your kingdom one soul, one activity, one sacrifice at a time. And so, God, here we are and we have all kinds of different worries and we have all kinds of different concerns. And, Lord, you have called us to take our eyes off of our own situations and put them on our Savior and be about your business. And Jesus is our example. He did not come to be served, but to serve. And he came not speaking of his own words, but by everything uh, that God had commanded. And he came not to do his will, but the will of the Father who sent him. And so, Lord, we are to follow in like manner. From the time we are children until the time we see you in glory, we are called slaves of Jesus Christ. And so with that, Lord, we are coming to this time of dedicating a young one to you. This time where the community, the church, the family is dedicating their time and their efforts and their energy to make sure that this little one follows in your ways. And so, God, I just pray that we can be faithful to the call. In Jesus' name, amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.